My name is Mason Kainrich. I am a historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on the Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. When we left the narrative, Orente had arrived at a grand ball, hoping to confront the people he and Vasker believed were behind Mare's death. A beautiful woman had just thrown her arms around Orente, which is probably the happiest he has been in this story full of murder and conspiracy. It is suggested, with Orente's narrative and a few comments he made to me, that his life in Korriban had mostly been a very happy one. He enjoyed his work, he went to elaborate parties, and evidently beautiful women being very pleased to see him was a regular occurrence. But, before we continue with that story, I thought it best to bring you one of the key events in the life of Captain Chloe Vasker. To this day, some refer to her, some in disgust and some in admiration, as the King Killer, despite the fact that she has not killed any king. Letter of Count Marlon Partax to the Sordaiton Times, published 23rd November, 1871. Today was, without a shadow of a doubt, the most extraordinary day of my life, and considering I have lived through the dead rising to kill us and the collapse of an empire overnight, today was truly exceptional. When I woke this morning, I was Count Marlon Partax, cousin of King Silas Caron, courtier and general in His Majesty's army. I was rich, important, and influential, but the structure which upon all that was based was overturned by the audacity of a girl. I say a girl, Lieutenant Chloe Vasca, a soldier of the Legion. I used to laugh at her and the other women in the Legion. I thought they played at being soldiers, and practically the only army in the world that would accept them. I had badly misjudged her. To many not from the area, I know that the new politics of what had once been the Arlen Empire is terribly confusing, so allow me to explain a little as I hope for this to be reprinted around the world. A few years ago, King Silas Caron was merely carrier of the Emperor's orders and governor of Tlassi province, and like many other governors and generals, he had grand ambitions to make something more of himself. So, when the Emperor was overthrown, he made himself a king. It all sounds very impressive, but the new kingdom of Tlassi had many, many problems. The biggest being that a quarter of the kingdom was in the hands of the infected, and there was a border several hundred miles long that needed defending from them. The Tlassi army was not very impressive, and I say that as a general in that army, and it was the legion that handled most of the fighting against the undead. Personally, I always thought they did a good job and could see no reason why we shouldn't let them keep doing it. After all, it cost us nothing. My cousin felt differently. He didn't like the presence of thousands of foreign soldiers whose loyalty was not to him, and he took any opportunity to show his power and try and humiliate the legion. They bore their humiliation stoically, more concerned with their work than the king's or their own ego. The uneasy state of affairs could have perhaps lasted years were it not for two problems. First, Silas was not really very good at being king. Like many men, he needed a boss to bring out the best in him. When Silas had to worry about being replaced, or worse, by the emperor, he worked hard, and while he enjoyed the perks power gave him, his corruption was kept 
to an acceptable level. That changed when he became king. This might surprise people to learn, but before he became a king, he had been quite sensitive to public opinion. He knew what the people on the street were saying, and he knew that that was important. He lost that when he gained his crown. The second problem was the refugees. Over the years, tens of thousands of people had fled the infected areas, looking for safety. And many people don't realize they are still coming to this day. The king would become very angry on the subject of refugees. He didn't trust them, he didn't like them, and he definitely didn't want them in his kingdom. His majesty seemed to forget that he was actually paid money by many foreign countries to provide for these refugees. The reason this may have slipped his mind was that very little of that money actually made it to the refugees, and by this point they lived in filth and squalor, their camps full of disease and starvation. The king sent thugs into the camps to extract the few valuables these people had managed to save, some were sold into slavery, and if any dared to complain, they were lucky to survive the beatings they received. The Legion constantly petitioned the king about these problems, but his majesty ignored their complaints. Inevitably, the refugees revolted. They had come here for safety, and many said they would prefer the infected to the hospitality of the king. The refugees were brave and noble in spirit, but we had guns, and the revolt was easily put down. And that brings us to the events of this morning. At a frightfully early time, His Majesty called upon his chief advisors and gave orders to mobilize the soldiers at hand. Furious about the uprising, the king planned to simply push the refugees back across the border and not let any more cross. I was not thrilled to be part of this, but neither did I refuse. Hardly my greatest moment. I left to carry out my orders and soon had assembled two thousand soldiers. His Majesty joined me, resplendent in his uniform and silver breastplate, and he walked down the first line of soldiers, admiring them, and occasionally giving them an encouraging word. I could insult his majesty by saying that he liked to play at being a soldier, but that would be very hypocritical of me. True, I knew how to load a rifle and how to hold a sword, but I was hardly an experienced man of war. News of the king's plan soon reached the legion, and they sent a delegation of senior officers to talk the king down from his madness. They rushed to the king in their drab gray uniforms. They originally chose gray as that was the cheapest material, making all kinds of objections. I recognized some of these people. Some legionnaires whose skill lay outside the sphere of killing the undead were better deployed in political and administrative functions and spent more time talking than fighting. One of these officers I didn't recognize. Her dirtier uniform and rougher appearance marked her as a fighter. This officer was a woman, and like many, I had mocked the Legion for taking on women soldiers, and when the delegation arrived, I still held that opinion. The Legionnaires launched into their eloquent arguments about not attacking the refugees, wisely playing to the king's weaknesses rather than the morality of his actions. Often, the king could be talked round from some of his more disastrous ideas. Another tactic was simply to agree but ensure the wheels of bureaucracy turned so slowly the king had a chance to change his mind. But this time, he was determined, and when the Legionnaires became despondent, this woman spoke up. She was tall, pale-skinned, and with very short black hair and a serious expression. She was tired of the polite requests of her superiors and simply explained to the king that his plan would not go ahead. She didn't threaten him or say what she planned to do, but simply stated the king's wishes would not happen. While the woman was perfectly calm and her words carefully chosen, the way she said it worried me, and my hand slowly moved to the hilt of my saber. Things became quite tense very quickly. 
A lot of people spoke all at once. The king's courtiers angrily denounced the woman, and her own comrades urgently told her to be quiet. This soon passed, as it was the king who was truly irate. He heaped vitriol and scorn upon her, insulting her in numerous ways. But again, she remained calm. And then the king struck her, hitting her with the back of his hand. It wasn't much of a blow, and I don't think it fazed this woman at all. She explained how she would remain calm, as the lives of many depended on it, and told the king to rescind his orders. The king said he would do no such thing, and was about to turn away from the woman when she grabbed him tightly on the arm and stopped him. One of the other soldiers stepped forward and started to say something. She cut him off. I didn't join the Legion at the age of 17 and travel 2,000 miles to protect the people from undead monsters just to see some mad king kill them in a temper tantrum. The king didn't quite seem to believe what was going on. A bizarre smile on his face. He was a king, albeit without the lineage of some, but a king nonetheless. He glanced to me and ordered me to arrest her. I began to draw my saber, but had barely moved an inch when I stopped. The woman was staring at me intently, and I knew that if I drew my sword, things would escalate. She wasn't going to back down, and her confidence told me that the rest of the Legion would follow her. I might be able to kill her, but that would just be the first death. The woman had rested one hand on her pistol. It was one of those special Legion guns that held a single devastating bullet. I let go of my sword and stepped away from the madness, the king finally beginning to look concerned as his various courtiers avoided his gaze. He ordered some of his soldiers to intervene. Most did nothing. A few looked to me, and I shook my head sadly. More legionnaires arrived, and the woman announced she was placing the king under arrest. One of her superior officers asked under what authority, but she didn't answer, and really, it was obvious. Her own authority. It was all over in a moment. A monarchy crumbled in seconds. The king was taken to the stockade, deemed unfit to rule. A few officials, perhaps worried about their own future, kicked up a fuss, but that was it. The army, what had been his army, seemed relieved. A woman, one woman, had unmade a king, and it wasn't the gun that did it. It was her, her force of will. In many ways, it's an embarrassing story. I was beaten without even putting up a fight without my opponent even drawing their weapon. But it was so remarkable I couldn't keep these events to myself. I don't know what I'll do now as I can't see whatever government follows really having a place for me. But I know I don't want to fight for tyrants or madmen. I know that. This was the event that made Chloe Vasker famous, and rightly so. It has been much discussed by scholars and experts, for it is considered something of a watershed the end of absolute monarchy, the idea of legitimacy being conveyed simply because you were king. Vasker showed that all that power, the gold, the soldiers, the titles, all of it was built on a shared illusion, and it only took one person not to believe. Others argue that it only worked because Silas wasn't really a king, or at best a new king, and imagine things going very differently if Vasker had tried to dethrone a draven emperor with over a thousand years of authority behind them. I'm not sure. Obviously, I never met Vasker, since she died in the ignition, but it seems that she had a presence, some natural authority that carried her through these troubles, something that has never quite been captured in writing. Of course, if Orente's account is correct, then she could still be out there.
The beautiful woman was Celia Perakana, and she was the mistress of Baron Koperek, foreign minister of the Draven Empire. She was also Kassarian, and it was a personal favor to Koperek that I had some of Celia's legal troubles back home disappear. On the surface, this might have seemed genuinely altruistic, as there was no reciprocal favor immediately requested, but a good diplomat always remembers the favors they've done for people. With Celia's help, we arranged a meeting with Koperek in one of the many empty rooms. Despite being one of the senior members of the Draven government, Baron Koperek was not actually very intelligent. In any government, powerful positions rarely go to the most qualified, and in an autocratic society like the Draven Empire, this was even worse. Koperek got where he was because he played tennis with the Emperor. He was also a member of the dominant faction at court, which pushed for strong expansion, where any sensible minister would be advocating consolidation. Still, it was fortunate for me, if unfortunate for the Draven Empire, that he was foreign minister. Koprek seemed ever so slightly drunk, and was certainly very happy to see me. He looked over at Vasca and seemed confused, before returning to me. He asked what he could do for me. Vasca and I had discussed it, and it was agreed a direct approach would be best. I accused the Draven Empire, and implicitly Koperek, of serious breaches of the law by running a smuggling operation in the city, bringing in items from the infected areas, either for profit or to simply decorate the Emperor's palaces. Not only that, but they had killed Antonius Murray, and likely committed many other similar acts. I realized, before I'd even finished, that Koperek knew nothing about any of this. He wasn't upset or offended, just confused, and he still thought this was some sort of friendly conversation. Vasca quickly showed him that it wasn't when she grabbed him roughly by his, presumably, very expensive jacket and pushed him against the wall and simply demanded answers. I tried to calm Vasca, but she ignored me. Koperek managed to wrestle himself free, and as Vasca grabbed his shoulder, he fell, crashing into a table. I rushed forward to help him when the door to the room burst open. Standing in the doorway was a middle-aged man of average height, a little stout with a thick beard and graying hair. It was Emperor Varance II. What the hell is going on here? he demanded. It did not look good, and then things got even worse. The Emperor recognized Vasca. Varance gave an order, and several soldiers walked in. They were the well-dressed and aristocratic variety, but looked strong enough. Two of them grabbed me, while another two did the same to Vasca, one grabbing her pistol from its holster. The Emperor approached and helped up Koperek, who was a little shaken by the whole affair. The two talked quietly before the Emperor sent Koperek out of the room. He walked up to Vasca and drew himself up to his full height, and seemed to study her carefully for several seconds. He announced that if a person had assaulted a member of his government, and even worse, a personal friend of his, then the consequences would be severe. But he respected the Legion. So he turned to me, pointing out that I was a diplomat and couldn't be arrested for whatever nonsense this was. As he finished saying this, he punched me hard in the stomach. I doubled over in pain only to be pulled up by the soldiers so the Emperor could take another shot, this time punching me in the face. They let me fall to the ground this time. I had to admit, the Emperor hit harder than I'd imagined. We were quickly ejected from the palace, with the soldiers managing to get a few kicks in as well. We suffered the ultimate indignity of being thrown out through one of the servant doors.
I lay on the cold ground and watched them push Vasco through the door, followed by her disassembled pistol. One of the soldiers approached me, looking to get in one more kick, when Vasco stopped him. She put a hand on his chest and pushed him back ever so slightly. The soldier sneered and tried to push Vasco away, so she headbutted him. The soldier staggered back, blood already pouring from his broken nose. For a moment, I thought Vasco had finally gone too far, but the soldier spat a draven curse at us and slammed the door. Vasco picked up the pieces of her pistol and put them back together in a few seconds and then looked at me, asking what was next. I didn't know what was next. I knew at the very least I'd destroyed my career. Being physically attacked by one of the most powerful people in the world was considered failing in diplomacy and espionage. The best I could hope was that the Emperor would consider this over and not make an official complaint. Of course, even if he didn't complain, news of this would be spreading across the city already. I was genuinely concerned I might receive a change of address letter from my superiors, the infamous unofficial exile given to people who embarrass the Republic. Kazar, The Rise and Fall by Jonas Menar. Kazar was once a small and insignificant city. The people who founded it had been pushed across the continent until they simply ran out of land and made a home in a pestilent and unforgiving area known as Cassian. The settlement was virtually surrounded by swamps, with a small stretch of land touching the sea. Having no land to speak of, it was to the sea the people of Kazar turned to, starting with fishing. But they did not have the sea to themselves, and soon realized they would have to fight for it, and so began a process that would see the tiny city-state of Kazar compete with the greatest nations of the world as equals. After a century of fighting neighbors, pirates, raiders, and more for control of the coast next to the city, the people of Kazar had become adept sailors. This was a time when the Ludus coastline was ruled by pirates, and the absence of real power worked to their advantage, and soon it was Kazarian ships that controlled that section of the sea. Their sea power grew with each decade, and despite regularly being hugely outnumbered, they proved victorious in naval engagements. Not only did they have the best sailors, they had the best shipbuilders. The Republic had a huge program to train and educate the young in the art of this craft. It was said a Kazarian galley was worth a dozen of any other in the world. The Kazarian Republic used this power for two purposes, trade and war, and usually these were interconnected. Around this time, it was often mercenary bands that did most of the fighting, and Kazar saw that their navy could operate in a similar way, and they had a lucrative business in defending or attacking coastal cities. But really, it was trade where the Kazarians excelled, showing a ruthless pragmatism rarely seen in politics and commerce of the time. And, of course, Kazar took risks. They sailed to Nemoria when others said it was impossible. They traded with the great devil Jakara, and they regularly dared other nations to stop them. But the Kazarian spirit was not shown just at sea. Their prosperity and rising power inevitably led to tensions with their neighbors, and over the course of 120 years, the city withstood 15 separate sieges. The Kazarians had two major advantages to withstanding sieges. Obviously, with their naval power, resupplying the city was not an issue. But perhaps more importantly... The swamps that initially hemmed them in and caused disease acted as their savior. Any army attempting to besiege was beset with illness. 
when King Dawas brought 15,000 men with him to capture the city. He left after two weeks with fewer than 10,000 without a single skirmish with the defenders. The Khazarians played a precarious game, constantly forming and abandoning alliances, trading with whoever would make them money, and using their naval power to intimidate their enemies. Their power grew so much that people spoke of the Khazarian Empire, coastal cities, and islands that fell under their influence. It was at the peak of their power that they developed their greatest weapon after their navy and the swamp, espionage. Every nation had spies, but nobody put as much effort into it as the Khazarians. Their agents demanded every scrap of information, cultivated informers across the known world, and weren't above the occasional assassination. The Khazarian Empire couldn't last forever, and as the world raced towards modernity, the small city-states simply couldn't compete. Other countries began to put as much effort into their navy, and soon, Khazarian supremacy was a thing of the past. Modern economic systems overtook the comparatively simple trade mechanisms the Khazarians had developed. The last gasp of Khazarian naval power was at the Battle of Trazagen against Hanaria, where their navy was routed and never really recovered. The past two centuries has seen ignominy and humiliation, the complete loss of their empire, the collapse of their trading system, bankruptcy, the end of the republic when Hanarians installed King Federico, which only ended when the Hanarian government ended their support of the puppet king. Khazarian diplomacy and espionage is still seen as amongst the best in the world, but for some time, they have been defending a third-rate power. It took me some time to get home, mainly because I decided to get very drunk first. Poriban is a city that takes its drinking seriously, and a simple wander around your average neighborhood will probably take you past several suitable establishments. As drunk as I was, I decided then rather go to my normal apartment, where I suspected the Brotherhood could be waiting for me, I would use my rooms at the embassy. Despite the safety I should have been in at the embassy, when I reached my rooms I grasped an empty bottle by the neck to use as a weapon should I need it. I swung the door open and saw nothing, and relaxed. I collapsed onto my couch and could feel sleep already taking over when there was a knock at the door. I looked up and very quickly became sober. It was the ambassador. Mikhail de Vonnier was old Caesarian nobility with impeccable credentials as a member of the establishment. He was known for his friendly and informal nature, which hid a cunning and vicious mind completely devoted to the cause of Cassiah. My contact with de Vonnier had been infrequent, although he had worked closely with Murray. Suffice it to say, de Vonnier visiting me in my rooms in the middle of the night after I had been punched by an emperor was a cause for concern. However, the ambassador quickly reassured me. He knew what had happened at the Sunset Palace and considered it to be of minor importance, and in a few years I would be dining out on the story of the time Varance II punched me. De Vonnier felt that it was far too important a time to be firing our chief spy. So you've been looking into Marais' death? He asked me. I said that I had, and de Vonnier shook his head sadly. Probably best you not look into that, he said. I clearly looked confused, and so de Vonnier explained. Moray's death was no mystery, but it would be embarrassing to the Republic if all the details came out. Very embarrassing. This is what happens when we employ these new men, said de Vonnier, alluding to Moray's commoner background. 
I mumbled something that the ambassador took as agreement. Men like Devonne would always look down on Moray. It didn't matter that Moray was exceedingly rich. It didn't matter that Moray had led a life of triumph and adventure. It didn't matter that Moray was extremely capable and good at his job. To men like Devonier, Moray would always be inferior. And I'm ashamed to admit this now, but I was a man like Devonier. Maybe that was why, when Devonier had offered me a way to save my career that implicitly relied on me giving up on finding out what happened to Moray, I took it. Kassire has a reputation for espionage, plotting, and simply downright cheating people, but there are very few examples of a people who have achieved so much when starting with so little. They lacked natural resources, money, and allies, but built an empire. Perhaps when you have nothing, you have to cheat a little just to be able to compete. The popular stereotype of a Kassirene contains many traits, both positive and negative. People may admire their ambition and their hard work, but people don't think you can trust them. While I have no other proof of Devonier's callous abandonment of Marais, it fits with what is known of him and Kassirene aristocrats of that time. When talking with Ciro, sometimes he would drop hints that he had resented the fact that Marais had been his superior, and he seemed thoroughly ashamed of that attitude. Ciro, agreeing to no longer investigate Marais's death, clearly weighed heavily on him, and I can't help but think, if I was retelling my life story, it's an incident I would have missed out. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com Sira Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Count Morlin was played by Tom Kenworthy. Find Tom on Twitter at DeadyBones. Jonas Menor was played by Nick Koyama. Find Nick on Twitter at World of Nines. <laughs>